Chapter Nine of Sylvie and Bruno Concluded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Sylvie and Bruno Concluded by Lewis Carroll. Chapter Nine The Farewell Party. On the following day, Arthur and I reached the hall in good time, as only a few of the guests—it was to be a party of eighteen—had as yet arrived, and these were talking with the Earl, leaving us the opportunity of a few words apart with our hostess. "'Who is that very learned-looking man with the large spectacles?' Arthur inquired. "'I haven't met him here before, have I?' "'No, he's a new friend of ours,' said Lady Muriel. "'A German, I believe.' he is such a dear old thing and quite the most learned man i ever met with one exception of course she added humbly as arthur drew himself up with an air of offended dignity and the young lady in blue just beyond him talking to that foreign-looking man is she learned too i don't know said lady muriel but i'm told she's a wonderful pianoforte player i hope you'll hear her tonight I asked that foreigner to take her in, because he's very musical, too. He's a French count, I believe, and he sings splendidly. Science, music, singing, you have indeed got a complete party, said Arthur. I feel quite a privileged person meeting all these stars. I do love music. But the party isn't quite complete, said Lady Muriel. You haven't brought us those two beautiful children, she went on, turning to me. He brought them here to tea, you know, one day last summer, again addressing Arthur, and they are such darlings. They are indeed, I assented. But why haven't you brought them with you? You promised my father you would. I'm very sorry, I said, but really it was impossible to bring them with me. Here I most certainly meant to conclude the sentence, and it was with a feeling of utter amazement, which I cannot adequately describe, that I heard myself going on speaking. But they are to join me here in the course of the evening, were the words uttered in my voice and seeming to come from my lips. I am so glad, Lady Muriel joyfully replied. I shall enjoy introducing them to some of my friends here. When do you expect them? I took refuge in silence. The only honest reply would have been, That was not my remark. I didn't say it, and it isn't true. But I had not the moral courage to make such a confession. The character of a lunatic is not, I believe, very difficult to acquire, but it is amazingly difficult to get rid of, and it seemed quite certain that any such speech as that would quite justify the issue of a writ de lunatico inquirendo. Lady Muriel evidently thought I had failed to hear her question, and turned to Arthur with a remark on some other subject, and I had time to recover from my shock of surprise, or to awake out of my momentary eerie condition, whichever it was. When things around me seemed once more to be real, Arthur was saying, "'I'm afraid there's no help for it. They must be finite in number.' "'I should be sorry to have to believe it.' said Lady Muriel. Yet when one comes to think of it, there are no new melodies nowadays. What people talk of as the last new song 
always recalls to me some tune I've known as a child. "'The day must come, if the world lasts long enough,' said Arthur, "'when every possible tune will have been composed, every possible pun perpetrated.' Lady Muriel wrung her hands like a tragedy queen. "'And worse than that, every possible book written, for the number of words is finite.' "'It'll make very little difference to the authors,' I suggested. "'Instead of saying, what book shall I write, an author will ask himself, which book shall I write? A mere verbal distinction.' Lady Muriel gave me an approving smile. "'But lunatics would always write new books, surely,' she went on. "'They couldn't write the sane books over again.' "'True,' said Arthur. "'but their books would come to an end also. "'The number of lunatic books is as finite as the number of lunatics.' "'And that number is becoming greater every year,' said a pompous man, "'whom I recognized as the self-appointed showman on the day of the picnic.' "'So they say,' replied Arthur. "'And when ninety percent of us are lunatics,' he seemed to be in a wildly nonsensical mood, the asylums will be put to their proper use. And that is? the pompous man gravely inquired. To shelter the sane, said Arthur. We shall bar ourselves in. The lunatics will have it all their own way outside. They'll do it a little queerly, no doubt. Railway collisions will be always happening, steamers always blowing up, most of the towns will be burnt down, most of the ships sunk. "'And most of the men killed,' murmured the pompous man, who was evidently hopelessly bewildered. "'Certainly,' Arthur assented. "'Till at last there will be fewer lunatics than sane men. Then we come out, they go in, and things return to their normal condition.' The pompous man frowned darkly, and bit his lip, and folded his arms, vainly trying to think it out. "'He is jesting.' he muttered to himself at last, in a tone of withering contempt, as he stalked away. By this time the other guests had arrived, and dinner was announced. Arthur, of course, took down Lady Muriel, and I was pleased to find myself seated at her other side, with a severe-looking old lady, whom I had not met before, and whose name I had, as is usual in introductions, entirely failed to catch, merely gathering that it sounded like a compound name, as my partner for the banquet. She appeared, however, to be acquainted with Arthur, and confided to me in a low voice her opinion that he was a very argumentative young man. Arthur, for his part, seemed well inclined to show himself worthy of the character she had given him, and, hearing her say, I never take wine with my soup, this was not a confidence to me, but was launched upon society as a matter of general interest. He at once challenged a combat by asking her, When would you say that property commence in a plate of soup? This is my soup, she sternly replied, and what is before you is yours. No doubt, said Arthur, but when did I begin to own it? Up to the moment of its being put into the plate, it was the property of our host. While being offered round the table, it was, let us say, held in trust by the waiter. Did it become mine when I accepted it, 
or when it was placed before me, or when I took the first spoonful. "'He is a very argumentative young man,' was all the old lady would say. But she said it audibly this time, feeling that society had a right to know it. Arthur smiled mischievously. "'I shouldn't mind betting you a shilling,' he said, "'that the eminent barrister next you—' It certainly is possible to say words so as to make them begin with capitals. Can't answer me. I never bet, she sternly replied. Not even sixpenny points at whist? Never, she repeated. Whist is innocent enough, but whist played for money. She shuddered. Arthur became serious again. I'm afraid I can't take that view, he said. I consider that the introduction of small stakes for card-playing was one of the most moral acts society ever did as society. How was it so? said Lady Muriel. Because it took cards, once for all, out of the category of games at which cheating is possible. Look at the way croquet is demoralizing society. Ladies are beginning to cheat at it terribly, and if they're found out, they only laugh and call it fun. But when there's money at stake, that is out of the question. The swindler is not accepted as a wit. When a man sits down to cards and cheats his friends out of their money, he doesn't get much fun out of it, unless he thinks it fun to be kicked downstairs. "'If all gentlemen thought as badly of ladies as you do,' my neighbor remarked with some bitterness, "'there would be very few, very few—' She seemed doubtful how to end her sentence, but at last took honeymoons as a safe word. "'On the contrary,' said Arthur, the mischievous smile returning to his face, "'if only people would adopt my theory, the number of honeymoons, quite of a new kind, would be greatly increased.' "'May we hear about this new kind of honeymoon?' said Lady Muriel. "'Let X be the gentleman.' Arthur began, in a slightly raised voice, as he now found himself with an audience of six, including mein Herr, who was seated at the other side of my polynomial partner. Let X be the gentleman, and Y the lady to whom he thinks of proposing. He applies for an experimental honeymoon. It is granted. Forthwith, the young couple, accompanied by the great-aunt of Y, to act as chaperone, start for a month's tour, during which they have many a moonlight walk, and many a tete-a-tete -tete conversation, and each can form a more correct estimate of the other's character in four weeks than would have been possible in as many years when meeting under the ordinary restrictions of society. And it is only after their return that X finally decides whether he will or will not put the momentous question to Y. In nine cases out of ten the pompous man proclaimed, he would decide to break it off. Then in nine cases out of ten, Arthur rejoined, an unsuitable match would be prevented, and both parties saved from misery. The only really unsuitable matches, the old lady remarked, are those made without sufficient money. Love may come afterwards. Money is needed to begin with. This remark was cast loose upon society as a sort of general challenge. 
and as such it was at once accepted by several of those within hearing money became the keynote of the conversation for some time and a fitful echo of it was again heard when the dessert had been placed upon the table the servants had left the room and the earl had started the wine in its welcome progress round the table i'm very glad to see you keep up the old customs i said to lady muriel as i filled her glass it's really delightful to experience once more the peaceful feeling that comes over one when the waiters have left the room when one can converse without the feeling of being overheard and without having dishes constantly thrust over one's shoulder how much more sociable it is to be able to pour out the wine for the ladies and to hand the dishes to those who wish for them in that case kindly send those peaches down here said a fat red-faced man who was seated beyond our pompous friend i've been wishing for them diagonally for some time yes it is a ghastly innovation lady muriel replied letting the waiters carry round the wine at dessert for one thing they always take it the wrong way round which of course brings bad luck to everybody present better go the wrong way than not go at all said our host would you kindly help yourself this was to the fat red-faced man you are not a teetotaler i think indeed but i am he replied as he pushed on the bottles nearly twice as much money is spent in england on drink as on any other article of food read this card what faddist ever goes about without a pocketful of the appropriate literature the stripes of different colors represent the amounts spent on various articles of food look at the highest three money spent on butter and on cheese thirty-five millions on bread seventy millions on intoxicating liquors one hundred and thirty-six millions if i had my way i would close every public-house in the land look at that card and read the motto that's where all the money goes to have you seen the anti-teetotal card arthur innocently inquired no sir i have not the orator savagely replied what is it like almost exactly like this one the colored stripes are the same only instead of the words money spent on it has incomes derived from sale of and instead of that's where all the money goes to its motto is that's where all the money comes from the red-faced man scowled but evidently considered arthur beneath his notice so lady muriel took up the cudgels do you hold the theory she inquired that people can preach teetotalism more effectually by being teetotalers themselves certainly i do replied the red-faced man now here is a case in point unfolding a newspaper cutting let me read you this letter from a teetotaler to the editor sir i was once a moderate drinker and knew a man who drank to excess i went to him give up this drink i said it will ruin your health you drink he said why shouldn't i yes i said but i know when to leave off he turned away from me you drink in your way he said let me drink in mine be off then i saw that to do any good with him i must forswear drink from that hour i haven't touched a drop there what do you say to that 
he looked round triumphantly, while the cutting was handed round for inspection. "'How very curious!' exclaimed Arthur, when it had reached him. "'Did you happen to see a letter last week about early rising? It was strangely like this one.' The red-faced man's curiosity was roused. "'Where did it appear?' he asked. "'Let me read it to you,' said Arthur. He took some papers from his pocket, opened one of them, and read as follows. "'To the editor. Sir, I was once a moderate sleeper, and knew a man who slept to excess. I pleaded with him. "'Give up this lying in bed,' I said. "'It will ruin your health.' "'You go to bed,' he said. "'Why shouldn't I?' "'Yes,' I said. "'But I know when to get up in the morning.' He turned away from me. "'You sleep in your way,' he said. "'Let me sleep in mine. Be off.' Then I saw that to do any good with him I must forswear sleep. From that hour I haven't been to bed. Arthur folded and pocketed his paper, and passed on the newspaper cutting. None of us dared to laugh, the red-faced man was evidently so angry. "'Your parallel doesn't run on all fours,' he snarled. "'Moderate drinkers never do so,' Arthur quietly replied. Even the stern old lady laughed at this. "'But it needs many other things to make a perfect dinner,' said Lady Muriel, evidently anxious to change the subject. "'Mein Herr, what is your idea of a perfect dinner-party?' The old man looked round smilingly, and his gigantic spectacles seemed more gigantic than ever. "'A perfect dinner-party,' he repeated. First. It must be presided over by our present hostess. That, of course, she gaily interposed. But what else, Meinherr? I can but tell you what I have seen, said Meinherr, in mine own, in the country I have travelled in. He paused for a full minute and gazed steadily at the ceiling, with so dreamy an expression on his face that I feared he was going off into a reverie, which seemed to be his normal state. However, after a minute, he suddenly began again. "'That which chiefly causes the failure of a dinner-party is the running short, not of meat, nor yet of drink, but of conversation.' "'In an English dinner-party,' I remarked, "'I have never known small talk run short.' "'Pardon me,' Meinherr respectfully replied. "'I did not say small talk. I said conversation.' All such topics as the weather, or politics, or local gossip, are unknown among us. They are either vapid or controversial. What we need for conversation is a topic of interest, and of novelty. To secure these things, we have tried various plans, moving pictures, wild creatures, moving guests, and a revolving humorist. But this last is only adapted to small parties." "'Let us have it in four separate chapters, please,' said Lady Muriel, who was evidently deeply interested, as, indeed, most of the party were by this time, and all down the table talk had ceased, and heads were leaning forwards, eager to catch fragments of Meinherr's oration. "'Chapter One, Moving Pictures,' was proclaimed in the silvery voice of our hostess. "'The dining-table is shaped like a circular ring.' Mein Herr began in low, dreamy tones, which, however, were perfectly audible in the silence. The guests are seated at the inner side as well as the outer. 
having ascended to their places by a winding staircase from the room below. Along the middle of the table runs a little railway, and there is an endless train of trucks worked round by machinery, and on each truck there are two pictures leaning back to back. The train makes two circuits during dinner, and, when it has been once round, the waiters turn the pictures round in each truck, making them face the other way. Thus every guest sees every picture. He paused, and the silence seemed deader than ever. Lady Muriel looked aghast. "'Really, if this goes on,' she exclaimed, "'I shall have to drop a pin.' "'Oh, it's my fault, is it?' in answer to an appealing look from mine hair. I was forgetting my duty. Chapter 2. Wild Creatures We found the moving pictures a little monotonous, said mine hair. People didn't care to talk art through a whole dinner, so we tried wild creatures. Among the flowers, which we laid, just as you do, about the table, were to be seen here a mouse, there a beetle, here a spider, Lady Muriel shuddered. There a wasp, here a toad, there a snake. Father, said Lady Muriel plaintively, did you hear that? Though we had plenty to talk about. And when you got stung, the old lady began. They were all chained up, dear madam. And the old lady gave a satisfied nod. There was no silence to follow this time. Third chapter, Lady Muriel proclaimed at once, moving guests. Even the wild creatures proved monotonous, the orator proceeded. So we left the guests to choose their own subjects, and to avoid monotony, we changed them. We made the table of two rings, and the inner ring moved slowly round all the time, along with the floor in the middle and the inner row of guests. Thus, Every inner guest was brought face to face with every outer guest. It was a little confusing sometimes to have to begin a story to one friend and finish it to another, but every plan has its faults, you know. Fourth chapter, Lady Muriel hastened to announce, The Revolving Humorist. For a small party... We found it an excellent plan to have a round table with a hole cut in the middle large enough to hold one guest. Here we placed our best talker. He revolved slowly, facing every other guest in turn, and he told lively anecdotes the whole time. I shouldn't like it, murmured the pompous man. It would make me giddy revolving like that. I should decline to... Here it appeared to dawn upon him that perhaps the assumption he was making was not warranted by the circumstances. He took a hasty gulp of wine and choked himself. But Meinherr had relapsed into reverie and made no further remark. Lady Muriel gave the signal, and the ladies left the room. End of chapter 9